oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. Nothing but bubble gum and corn syrup this morning. I like to tiptoe around the controversial issues of the day. Want everybody to leave smiling, upbeat, happy, and positive. (laughs) If I were Pinocchio right now, man, my nose would be out to the back. No, I take very seriously the fact that I will stand one day before my Creator and I will have to give account for what I did and what I did not teach in His Word and the level to which I took the gifting, the training, the education, experience that He has given me and used it or not used it for the building of His kingdom, regardless of popularity. We are in part two of a message that began last week that I, in somewhat of a subdiluted state, thought I would get it all in. <laughs> no. And that's okay because sometimes opening the fire hydrant just uh, it kind of works against itself and needed to take in a little smaller piece, although it's not too small even this morning. This is not going to be the easiest message you've ever heard. Um, I mean both in content, uh, but more so in... Boy, uh, rigorous, you know, no fluff, down and dirty, dealing with the text, realizing that God gave this to us for a purpose, and he didn't give it to us to uh, ignore. Or worse yet, I suppose, to make it say something that it does not. So if you were not here last week, you I mean, I'm telling you, you are coming in right at the beginning of part two. And so you have to get part one especially if you're annoyed at what you hear this morning. Because the Holy Spirit has a way, if you are indwelled by the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit has a way of working with and through all of our little hang-ups, hiccups, desires, and everything else if we are truly interested in what He has to say for us and for mankind. And hopefully we all do. Because the Creator kind of knows how to make this thing called life actually work. And even then, it doesn't make it easy, but it's impossible any other way. I have to start this morning by hopefully even briefer than I did in the first service, talk about the systemic weakening of the Word of God, which has been birthed over time due to an unorthodox understanding of inspiration. That is the view that we come looking at the scriptures and what do we think of the Bible as? You know, is it a book that's just been penned by uh, many people through many centuries and there's some, you know, cool things to read in it, some not cool things to read in it, blood and guts and, but oh, the love of God stuff is really good and Jesus is always great and all that. But he has given it to us in totality. Nothing was omitted that he didn't want there. Nothing was added that he didn't want there. Did I say that right? Probably not. You know what I mean. (laughs) There are two underlying interpretational paradigms these days, unfortunately. The first one is that whatever you happen to personally feel in the Bible is good and right and true, is good and right and true. 
Conversely, whatever strikes one as distasteful or as mean or as even unchristian or anything else that happens to be offensive or hard to hear that you just don't agree with, you can simply dismiss it out of hand. This applies to many Christians as well as non-Christians. The second one applies primarily to those who in some way, shape, or form claim, profess some kind of Christian faith. If you ask them, do you consider yourself a Christian? They say, oh yeah, absolutely. This one says that the only words of Jesus are inspired. Now, if you are not aware of this, it is only because you are not aware of it, not because it is some kind of random little thing that I picked out somewhere or I'm picking on it or I'm setting up a straw man. No, no, no. This is big time and it's getting bigger time, which you'll see in a minute. One of the favorite arguments that I've heard over the years and read in the papers and read in the documents and the books and the onlines trying to justify same-sex attraction, is that Jesus never said anything about it. You know what? You can agree with that. Yeah, Jesus didn't. Not if you mean using the words same-sex attraction or homosexuality or transgender or transgenderism or LGBTQ, RLF, BG, HN, whatever all is still being added on to that whole mess. And I like to come back and say, no, you're right, he didn't. Neither did he say anything about domestic abuse or drunkenness or drug abuse or addiction. Now, if you are a studied Christian, a mature Christian, been in the faith for years in the discipline of reading through your Bible, you may be saying, okay, you're overstating that. Jesus does talk about some of those things. No, he doesn't. Not by the way they are referring to the same way Jesus doesn't speak about same-sex attraction or anything else. He never uses those words, those phrases. But you see, there's even a bigger problem with that. Is that it excludes the vast majority of the whole Bible, as I'm going to demonstrate. There are today... People who call themselves, just so you don't get confused, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, so hang on. There are people who call themselves red-letter Christians. That's what they call themselves. Okay, there's even, you can go to redletterchristian.org. And this is not some obscure kind of organization. There are some high-powered, well-known individuals that are part and parcel of this. Now, You've probably seen Bibles when I talk about the red letters of Jesus, okay, or the words of Jesus, the only thing they're inspired, and why they're called red-letter Christians is there are Bibles that have the words of Jesus in red. Absolutely nothing wrong with that, okay? It's a helpful, you know, editorial thing that the publishers put in somewhere along the line to make them kind of stand out and stick out, and every now and then I even enjoy kind of using that myself. Nothing wrong with that. But it becomes a huge problem. When you've not only convinced yourself, but you believe and are teaching others that the only things in the Bible that are truly inspired by God, meaning authoritative, are the words that Jesus himself spoke. And this 
army of Christians who so, so identify with this variety of inspiration, as I said, call themselves red letter Christians. This isn't my kind of, uh, you know, throwing an epithet out at them. That's what they call themselves and they're proud of it. And the generals, if you will, of this army are not obscure names among the pantheon of wayward Christians in Christendom. Brian McLaren, who back, I don't know, 15 years ago, maybe, maybe a little longer, wrote this groundbreaking book, unfortunately, uh, through the what was called then the Emerging Church or the Emergent Church called A New Kind of Christian. Brian McLaren was a well-respected, thought, Bible-believing evangelical, and he would still consider himself exactly that. A new kind of Christian is deplorable. It's a new kind of Christian, all right. doesn't bear much resemblance to the scriptures and what we're told. But anyway, Brian McLaren is one of those generals. Jim Wallace, some of you or probably most of you don't know who he is. He was the founder of a group called Sojourners. And Sojourners is what I would call a leftist, uh, theologically left-wing, liberation theology uh uh, socialist view on scriptures and on Jesus and the real godly lifestyle of the scriptures that are pointed out in there. Um, Ron Sider, who again in the 80s made his renown in writing a book called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. Some really good things and challenging things to say in that book. But again, when you get your eyes off the whole counsel of God's word, it takes on this life of its own and that which was part true becomes then heresy. But perhaps the biggest name that maybe, if anybody knows of any of them in here, it would be Tony Campolo. And I call him a three or four star general of the red letter Christians. So the modern day doctrine, meaning the evangelical, the the Bible believing Christians view of inspiration is being systematically torn apart and lost. What it leaves is a very, what the red letter Christian mindset leaves is a very small Bible to have to worry about reading through annually. So maybe you like that idea. You see, the Old Testament is basically relegated to whatever. That's 39 books of the total 66 of the Bible. Oh, they don't say don't read it. There's not good things you can glean there or pick up there and everything else, but it's certainly not inspired by God. Only the words of Jesus are. Well, okay, so then we go to the New Testament. We just got rid of 39 books, leaving 15 left. Even in the New Testament, though, no, you come to the Apostle Paul, well-known out there among those kinds of theologians, pseudo-Christians, I would say, you completely dismiss the nine books of the Apostle Paul because everybody knows, I'm sorry, the 12 books, uh, because the Apostle Paul was obviously a misogynist, which means a woman-hater, and just an individual who was very angry and hateful overall. So, of the remaining 15 books of the Bible, 11 of those 15 may contain helpful stories, maybe thought-provoking, maybe they intersect with where you're at in your life at that time. And so, you know, they can be beneficial to read and all of that uses anecdotes, but they are not inspired because only the red letters of the words spoken by Jesus are inspired, meaning authoritative, meaning they are not open to debate, except ironically, you'll see in a moment, uh, that they have to be believed and they have to be adhered to and pushed. And that is what it means to be a Christian. However, 
there's an interesting caveat even on the words of Jesus because there is disagreement amongst even the pseudo-Christian scholars on which of the red letters in particular are actually authentic to Jesus. Some of them are, they say, but, but yeah, we don't think all of them are. They don't like the miracles. So in 1985, New Testament pseudo-scholar, I think comically named by God and his foreknowledge, Dr. Funk, devised, that means to be depressed, if you don't know what funk means, devised the Jesus Seminar, whose purpose was to discover the historical Jesus, believing that the real Jesus was hidden behind almost 200 years of Christian tradition and myth and legend. And so what we are left with, as far as being the inspired, infallible, and authoritative word of God, as I like to rattle off, are parts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John leaving 95% of the Bible either useless or, at best, in the for-what-it's-worth category. Real Christians, however, are told in the inspired, infallible, and errant, authoritative Word of God that all Scripture, in the New Testament Greek, it's the pasa grafe. Pasa means all comprehensively grafe, the writings that God has delivered through the many authors through the centuries. All scripture is inspired by God. And because of that, it is all comprehensively authoritative and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, which means refutation, which means when somebody, whether they're Christian or opposer or anything else, says, oh, no, 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 the Bible is X, Y, Z. No, it says the scripture is useful to say, yeah, you're wrong, and this is right, and here's why. That's what it means to be authoritative and is profitable for correction, for changing personal opinion or others' opinions when they think, well, I kind of think this and that. No, it's good for correction as well as for training the ongoing discipleship in righteousness and becoming like Christ. Now, just as an observation of God's good humor, at 2 Timothy 3.16, for some reason when I went to paste that in to my uh, preparation, (laughs) and I didn't realize it immediately, it pasted in 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. And so I read it, and this is what it says. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Fifteen verses later, we get the doctrine of inspiration, meaning, and that's why you have the word that is inspired, that is infallible, that is profitable for correction, for instruction, for reproof, for training in righteousness. The assault on truth is incessant, and it goes back as far as the Garden of Eden. There's even the Garden, the serpent says, what? Did God say? Well, I, yeah, yes, he did. Well, you know, now that you're throwing the doubt in there, maybe he didn't really say that. It was the first assault on truth, on God's inspired word. But a significant difference throughout the ages is that that assault was first and foremost from outside 
the hallowed walls of the church, whereas now they are coming increasingly and quickly from within the so-called Christian church itself. Last week, and again, I implore you to listen to last week's message. You can get it online in many forms. I used a supposedly Christian website talking about the text that we happen to be in as I am working our way through 1 Samuel. I didn't just jump jump into 1 Samuel 18 because of the subject matter. I am exegeting God's word from beginning to end as I have done for 28 years now, book by book by book. That's how the Bible is supposed to be interpreted, translated, and applied to life, letting the Bible interpret the Bible. So we're in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 through 3, and I happen to know that the popular, ever-growing, from-within-the-church assault on truth is that oh, homosexuality is not only normal and good, it's encouraged by God in scriptures. And so this website that I was citing from last week, and will only very briefly this week to review some things, does so in a pseudo-scholarly manner, but it also imports meaning into the text that simply is not there. And that is what we want to deal with. The individual, and I don't know if it was a he or she, I'm just going to say he because that's what I default to just without thinking, that the author of the website, and this isn't some, some aberrant weird idea, okay? This is, again is being coming frequently more common and more common as an attack on the church and on God's word. For thousands of years, things that have never even been suggested about Jonathan and David's relationship, that it would be in any way, shape, or form untowards, all of a sudden, modern day is being not only assaulted, but being used as evidence of God's support and endorsement of homosexual relationship. Well, there is no more effective way to do this than to confuse the very act of creation, which again we are seeing within culture, wherein God made a man and he made a woman putting his divine and his unalterable stamp of design upon them, declaring in Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, I'm cutting some of it out, it will still be up there, but just because of time, I know that we run long from because of first service. It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. We drop down. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This has been what I've said now today, as far as this morning, has been an important uh, background for the rest of the story that we're going to deal with now. The text, as I said, presented last week, First Kings, which is our text for this week, 18, 1 through 3, presented the deceiver, the liar, uh, Satan himself, the opportunity to continue his deception in the waywardness of creation, making assertions concerning what the meaning is of a very straightforward text to anybody who is not under the influence of satanic deception. Let's read it. First Samuel 18. Now it came about 
when he, Jonathan, had finished speaking to Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. The so-called Christian website I used last week as an illustration is of how stridently he argues that David and Jonathan were actually partners in homosexual marriage. I took us through a very meticulous, probably somewhat boring, I don't apologize, sometimes it's necessary, but critical review of the website's author explaining that his assertions, meaning, well, this is true because I say it's true, showing how outlandish and manufactured the author's conclusions were as he writes the following. In telling the true story of how much David loved Jonathan, God provides a strong affirming message for gays and lesbians and for the church about the sanctity of committed gay relationships and gay marriages which are within the biblical moral framework. What we didn't have time for last week was to dissect the passage then for ourselves, not my simply pointing out why what this person is saying is wrong, but to take it then and say what it is saying and why we know it's saying that and not what that person is saying is to delve into the text ourselves, wrestle with it and pull out what is there, not put in what we want to be there. Again, the author argues that the word translated love from the Hebrew, it's just a three-letter word pronounced acheb. You don't want to say that if you've got a sinus infection. It could be nasty. Taken on balance, the author asserts it means romantic same-sex attraction. So, I have a penchant for ling- linguistics anyway. Um, I just love language, language studies, and... At any rate, um, so I was kind of getting my juices going on this one, as I never have in all my time in pastoral ministry. Behind me are the books that I use. These are all linguistic books. These are not commentaries. What does Joe Blow say about what he says or what the passage should mean or what you should think about it? These are linguistic books so that I could dig into the Hebrew as deeply as I could to come up what is there, not what me or anybody else wants to be there. The third and fourth books in that stack is called the Theological Word Book of the Old Testament. It is uh, the word love, as it's used in the Hebrew, is really similar, ironically, to our own word for love, meaning it's really broad. So, for example, our understanding of the word for love. I love Chicago deep dish pizza, right? You love various foods or things and who knows what else, right? I loved my Mini Cooper, okay? I love my children, not to be confused with my love for my Mini Cooper. I love my church, not to be confused for my love with my children. I love my wife, not to be confused with my love for my Mini Cooper or even my dog whom I loved. And I love my friends and I love the Lord. Eight different ways now. I just used our word for love. Different context, which is how a rational sane person knows pretty much what I mean. So that when I say I love hot dogs and I love my wife, 
They don't have this weird picture going on in their head about all that. You see? So the Hebrew for the word love has this very broad semantic range as I'm going to demonstrate. And see, if I say things like that and I don't show it or or demonstrate it, then I just made an argument by assertion. It's a very popular way of arguing today. Because people go, boy, he seems confident. Boy, he's loud. He's passionate. He must be right. I could be dead wrong. Okay? Of course, I'm not. But I could be. The Hebrew word for love. Are you ready? Genesis 22.2 talks about the love of a father for his son. It happens to be in the context of Abraham and his love for Isaac. The love, that same word, the love that God has for his people. I didn't cite any verse because it is just there all over the place. So, I, you know, I didn't think anybody would really question that. It's there. In Exodus 21, 8, the same word, three-letter word, is used for the love of a master by a slave. So much so does he think of his master that he willfully indentures himself to the master. In Leviticus 19.18 was the first time we run across love your neighbor as yourself. Entirely different nuance to the word love. In Psalm 119.47, the psalmist loved God's commandments. And then going back to my love of Chicago deep dish pizza, Isaac in Genesis 27.4 loved savory meat is what we are told. All the exact same word in the Hebrew. So again, like our word for love, it has this broad semantic range. So how do we pin down what such a word means in its use? Well, we have to, first of all, pay attention to immediate context. means how is it used in the sentence? And then looking at it, we say how is it used elsewhere in a little broader context? Maybe by a same writer, if we're talking about literature or letter or something, but maybe even beyond that, maybe even beyond Old Testament into New Testament, etc. So these are all the ways that we pin this down. But ideally, the closer to the situation in question that you can get with context, the better off you're going to be, meaning the more secure you're going to be with your results, trying to discern the meaning as it's used in the particular passage. So we are in 1 Samuel chapter 18, and it would be great if we could find the word, that three-letter word for love that's used in verses 1 through 3, somewhere else in Samuel, which we can. So Okay. We find it in 1 Samuel 20, verse 17, which is one of the passages. Why did I choose that one? Because it's one of the passages chosen by the pseudo-Christian author of the website himself to prove that Jonathan and David's attraction is same-sex. So in 1 Samuel 20, 17, it happens to be used three times in one sentence. So this could be and should be very helpful. 1 Samuel 2017, Jonathan made David vow again because of his love for him, because he loved him as he loved his own life. And I'm going to get picky here because we have to. 
in the what I'll call the microscopic field of context, meaning getting out of the broad to the narrower to the narrower to one sentence to where we have three different uses in that one sentence and hone in on it and focus in on that. We start there to develop what this word actually means, what the word is saying to us rather than what we want it to say. And because it's in the same context, we know that it is now going to give us valid uh, comparison and getting a flavor for the nuances of what Ahab, love, can and cannot mean. Again, the author asserts that it shows that David and Jonathan's love is homosexual love. But the author's own use of the verse actually works against him, though he doesn't realize it, proving too much. And what I mean by that is this. Linguistics has to be done like a science. Meaning using the metaphor, in this case the word as, demands that the love of Jonathan loved David is the same way that Jonathan loved his own life. Stay with me. So when the author of the website inappropriately imposes a homosexual kind of love into the verse, you get a really weird and untenable linguistic manipulation yielding a really strange way in which Jonathan loved himself. Let's look at it. Let me do this. Let me write the verse retaining the words as used by the author of the website. Here it is. Jonathan made David vow again because of his homosexual love for him because Jonathan loved David homosexually in the same manner with which Jonathan loved himself. Ignoring the linguistics and what it means to be using a metaphor to love himself as puts him into a little prison of uncomfortability and, in fact, of weirdness. The metaphor at use is a simile, which is what? Comparing two or more items using the words like or as. In verse, in chapter 20, verse 17, it's comparing Jonathan's love for himself as the equivalent of Jonathan's love for David, because it says he loved Jonathan as he loved himself which demands then that Jonathan loves himself homosexually, which is, of course, totally bizarre. We also read in our original passage something else that we haven't touched on yet, but is equally as important to the whole picture called context. We read in 1 Samuel 18, verse 1, Now it came about, when Jonathan had finished speaking to Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. Using this verse, this pseudo-Christian authority of the website imparts all kinds of meaning from the phrase, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. From this, he argues that David and Jonathan's love for each other is of the intimate kind found only in the classic understanding of marriage. So let's look at the use of koresh, which is the Hebrew, here for the word translated knit in this particular verse, and to the word, uh, I'm sorry, the way he uses being knit to the soul 
of David in its semantic ranges. So first background. Okay, we're going to do what we did with love, only not so hopefully long and protracted. Okay, so what does it mean to be knit to the soul of? Does it in fact imply or infer categorically the idea of intimacy in marriage? Okay, to be like, like I am knit to the soul of my wife. The two shall become one flesh, God says of marriage. All right. So the background of my first example is Joseph is the prime minister, if you will, of Egypt. And his brothers are in Egypt trying to get food. And they don't realize that Joseph is their brother that they tried to whack and get rid of and all of that. And so Joseph, of course, is having a little sport with them. And he tells them to go back home and bring Benjamin, who was their youngest brother, back with them. And Judah, the brother, is pleading with Joseph, saying, please don't make me do this, because my father so loves our, you know, the youngest of the bunch here, that he has told me that he would die if anything comes about, you know, to his harm. And so in Genesis 44, beginning verse 29, what we read there is, is that referring to uh, Jacob Okay, has pled, no, you, no, don't, if, if something happens to him, I will die. And so now Judah is pleading with the prime minister, who's their brother, but they don't realize that. And this is what he says. My father has said to me before we came that his life, okay, the same word, nephesh, which is translated soul with Jonathan and David and their souls being knit together. So his life or his soul is bound, the same word, koresh, for being bound or knit together, David and Jonathan's soul. His life is bound to the lad's soul so that he will die if anything happens to him. The point of this interchange is that Jacob's love for his son Benjamin was as intimate as a father's love to his son can be, such that if anything happens to him, it might as well happen to him because he would die. Obviously, In that use of the words, there is no suggestion that Jacob's soul being knit to his son's, to, to his son's soul contains some perverse manner of attraction. Instead, we completely understand that it's an emphatic statement of deep love of a father for a son that is godly and holy. Thus was the depth of David's and Jonathan's deep and abiding bond such that Jonathan even put his life on the line, as we know, as we read down the timeline, to protect David when his father, who's the demonically tortured Saul, determined to kill David. So I am destroying this manufactured context by the pseudo-Christian author and all what he imposes on his proof text to bring about the meaning that he desires. Let me put yet another nail in the coffin wherein we shall bury this deception that David and Jonathan were homosexual partners as the so-called Christian insists. In Second Samuel chapter 1, verse 26, here's what we read. David wrote a song for Jonathan. By the way, yeah, David wrote a song for Jonathan and Saul when they had both been killed in battle. And the author of the website claims this, that's why I'm using this particular verse, he uses this verse to show again that it's proof, again, of David and Jonathan's same-sex love. Here's what we read. The song that David wrote for Jonathan and Saul. 
I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love, Acheb, same word that we've been working with, to me was more wonderful than the love of women. All right. Pause a minute to have a reality check again about linguistics. The Old Testament Hebrew is a dead language. You understand it is no longer in use. It has not been in use since 500 AD. It's a dead language, meaning that it's been hundreds of years, even thousands, since anybody has been around who understood the language firsthand and could lay, lay, you know, all of this aside simply by saying, are you kidding me? We never use the word that way. Never, ever. Doesn't have that meaning whatsoever. You are just wrong and you're trying to infuse meaning to it. We don't have that luxury. Oh, or do we? Stay with me. What we cannot permit in any kind of language situation, and this goes for even, even you know, uh, uh, visiting other cultures in a, in a little different way, but don't let me confuse you. We can't permit or tolerate an anachronistic use. Gotta love that word. Ana without chronos time, without time. is what it literally means from Greek, ironically, as many of our words are. An anachronistic use of word means using it in an inappropriate era when the word would never have been used that way. Let me illustrate it. Remember the movie Back to the Future? Doesn't matter if you don't. Okay, I used to use this word a lot myself because I'm younger than quite a few of you in here. I'm older (laughs) than quite a few of you in here. Wow, it's getting late in the second service. Okay, and that's the word heavy. Okay, right? Marty McFly in Back to the Future travels back to 1953 from 1980-something. And several times at this point, now he's with Dr. Emmett Brown, who's only living and lived up to 1953. And Marty keeps using this expression, whoa, Doc, that's heavy. Whoa, Doc, that's, that's heavy. And finally, Dr. Brown says, Marty, is there something wrong with gravity in the future that everything's heavy? Okay, see... Marty took his meaning from 1985 and brought it back to 1953, expecting it would be understood. That's an anachronistic use of language. So what people have done today, and this website author has done, is he's he's taken all the biases of culture and all our understandings of language and picked it up here from 2018 or 2010 or whatever and taken it centuries back and laid it right on the text and saying, that's what it means. It's absurd. All right, but we have to prove that. How do we prove that? People are long, long, long dead who actually used Old Testament Hebrew. Well, we happen to have a linguistic expert who was well-versed in both. By well-versed, I mean fluent. In both Old Testament Hebrew as well as the current language of the day. They were both in you. They have overlap with New Testament Greek. Linguistic expert who knows Old Testament Hebrew firsthand because he uses it. He lives in the culture and New Testament Greek as well. But we actually have not only one linguistic expert that's in that category, we have 70 that I can document. And they're documented in a book called The Septuagint, which means the 70. 
What is the Septuagint? The Septuagint is the New Testament Greek translation of the Old Testament. And this was like this big eureka as I was sitting in my office around Wednesday. And I'm sitting there going, okay, but you can't just assert this. You got to prove this. And, this. and I went, oh, the Septuagint. Yes, these guys spoke both Old Testament Hebrew and New Testament Greek. And they could tell us, hopefully, whether this word should be translated like this, this variety of love should be translated like this, or what have you. And you say, well, how would you know that they would even do that? Because in New Testament Greek, they have three words for love, not just one. And the three words for love that they have in New Testament Greek are very pointed. First off, there is eros, from which we get our word erotic, meaning erotic, erotica, meaning sexual Love, sexual intimacy. The second word available in Greek is the word phileo, from which we know the Philadelphia, Philadelphia is from phileo, is the city of brotherly love. And that's what phileo love is. It's the brotherly kind of love. Best friends, you know, BFFs, forever, all that good stuff. The third kind of love that most of us are familiar with, who's been in church for any length of time, is agape Love, which is the selfless giving forth to another person, putting themselves way in the back solely for their benefit. It's the kind of love that God has for his people, but that we also can have for others. And in fact, are called to have that kind of love for others. Okay? So I said, how did these guys translate that word that they only had one choice in the Hebrew, acheb, with what, which three of those words for love would they use to translate it? They are experts in both. And lo and behold, find it. In 2 Samuel one twenty six. this is from the Septuagint, page 401, in case you want to look it up. <laughs> I am grieved for thee, my brother Jonathan, thou wast very lovely to me. Thy love... Agape to me was wonderful beyond the love agape of women. The linguistic experts of the day specifically chose agape and as important specifically chose not to use eros, which would have been a slam dunk then that it was, in fact, sexual intimacy that David and Jonathan were into. But they chose not to use that. Nor did they use a brotherly kind of love. They used agape, the intense, extreme love to where I would put my life on the line for you, which we read, if you know the story of David and Jonathan, Jonathan put his own life on the line more than a few times for David with his own father. Now, Additionally, that's nail, 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 now another nail. There was a Hebrew word in the Old Testament Hebrew for erotic or sexual love, which the author of Samuel could have used and would have used, since it's inspired, if that was the inspired intent of the text and what it meant. That word that is in Old Testament Hebrew is the word yada, which is never used of David and Jonathan anywhere, 
But where is it used? Oh, it's used in Sodom and Gomorrah. Lastly, a theological consideration beyond linguistics. Homosexuality was a capital crime in the God-ordained structures of Judaism. That David, the man who God calls a man after his own heart, the man that was handpicked by God himself, that David would be a sodomite for which the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed is absolutely unthinkable. So we can confidently lay to rest the shenanigans of the pseudo-intellects and scholars who twist and pervert the inspired, infallible, and errant authoritative word of God. Collegians, high schoolers, everybody else, remember again the words of Solomon. Everyone's way seems right until another comes and examines him. And in, of course, our educational system, understandably, you have the man or the woman standing up there with a bunch of degrees behind their name, and they teach with great authority and a questionability. And if anybody challenges them, it's, let's face it, there's, they're no match for the person, for the expert, who has got everything so memorized and so tight that they just sit there going, wow, this is ironclad. Yep, yep, yep. And you wonder why your kids bail on Christianity by the time they get through college. I finish where I began. Realize this, 2 Timothy 3, that in the last days difficult times will come for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. David and Jonathan were godly men who were not in any way, shape, or form homosexuals. Let me have you stand. Father in heaven, I pray that you would take my uh, my brain cramps Get rid of that, all the distraction that it was. And get rid of, Lord, the blah blahs and the yammer yammers. And just make this clear to hearts and minds. Not that it could be rearticulated, but they would know that just because there are difficult things in the word or there are things that the public is screaming with megaphones that seem ironclad, the word is your inspired word in totality and never fails. And we always need to go back to it as the final authority. Not culture, not politics, not politicians, not caveat, not fiat, not law, but your word, O God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.